you know, the biggest reason why primary care is a good thing is because you have time. You develop relationships in, in theory. Um, you develop trust between, you know, the practitioner and the patient. And so you can practice root cause medicine or at least start educating. Welcome, everyone, to the Primary Care Podcast. We explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies told by doctors working in primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tannick. Hi and hello, and welcome back to the PCP. This is episode nine with Dr. David Gordon. He is an internal medicine trained primary care physician who focuses on chronic disease treatment and more importantly, prevention. His current practice is called Four Pillars Health and Wellness, and you can find out more about him at fourpillarsdenver.com. And that's the number four, pillarsdenver.com. We've recorded this episode this episode and the next episode during the COVID-19 quarantine. So instead of being face-to-face in Dr. Gordon's home like we planned, we recorded this over FaceTime. So fair warning, there are a few times when the connection breaks up for a second or two, but overall I'm pretty pleased with how the audio turned out. And so thanks for bearing with us because, you know, we couldn't meet in person. Before we get to Dr. Gordon, I have to say how happy I am and how grateful I am to have you all as listeners to the show. I'm still over here trying to deliver quality content regarding different ways that a doctor can practice within the field of primary care and why it's important for patients to engage in quality primary care and what about it is fulfilling for docs who are PCPs. In this episode, Dr. Gordon and I talked about root cause medicine, talked about treating chronic disease differently than acute illness, and the importance of physicians educating patients and the general public and really prioritizing discussions on the topic of the contributing factors to chronic health problems. We got into that and many more topics in this episode. And this episode was part one of two that we're going to release with Dr. Gordon. Um, The second half of our conversation will release as part two um, on the next episode. And that episode will focus mainly on cannabis medicine. Um, What does the research say? How is cannabis used to good effect? What are the risks? We'll, we'll We'll do a deep dive on that. And we also get to listener questions at the end of next episode. So keep an eye out for part two, but as for now, enjoy part one of my FaceTime talk with Dr. David Gordon. All right, well, we are rolling right now and... I am in my home studio and talking to Dr. David Gordon via FaceTime on my computer. Uh, so th- once again, thank you for being here with me and, uh, and um, getting into uh, all the things that you do in your career. 
Absolutely. Thank you for, for having me. I'm excited to chat and, and love hearing about what, what you've been doing. Yeah, absolutely. And and don't be afraid to ask questions of, of me as we go along here. But uh, I'll start off by interviewing you a little bit about your upbringing, um, growing up and your first interest in, in medicine. And then we'll, we'll get uh, further down the road with you as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it started, you know, pretty, I guess I would say pretty early when I was applying to med school, I actually went back and looked at like my my mom's baby books that she was keeping and right around I think it was second grade is when I started writing I want to be a doctor you know right next to baseball player and fireman or whatever and so in second grade I started saying that there wasn't really an obvious it wasn't like I went through a big medical experience and said oh I need to do that uh presumably some influence was my grandfather my mom's dad who uh, was in LA. He was a family doctor in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And so that was really my only non, you know, personal experience of just going to the doctor, but he, you know, he, he was well-respected. I used to kind of hang out with him periodically, not tons at the clinic, but, you know, just in public places. And, you know, people would always go up to him, Hey doctor, Hey doctor. And I think you just kind of, at least back in the seventies, still maybe a higher level of respect for physicians than maybe there is kind of in, in 2020. Uh, so I think I saw that. And then when you're kind of a, you know, middle-class Jewish kid and you say you want to be a doctor, people kind of reinforce that quite uh, powerfully. So I was kind of my nature. I, I kind of always kind of gravitate out towards some positive reinforcement and whatnot. So I yeah. think really throughout my life, you know, I said, Oh, he's going to be a doctor. He's going to be a doctor. He's going to be a doctor. You know, kind of people run with that. Certainly my family ran with that. So That's I just so kind of ran with that basically. Uh, I and- love it. I, I relate to that big time because as I was a middle-class Jewish kid growing up with a maternal grandfather who was also in medicine, he was actually a, okay. a, a dentist by training and, and basically everything you said rings true to me. He was a, uh, he, you know, he occupied a very, uh, a space that people revered and uh, uh, was super well respected, and um, and I didn't really have all that many other uh, people in medicine in my life um, that were you know profoundly impactful like that. So mm-hmm. so I can relate. Yeah, very very relatable. And yeah, so you just kind of keep with it. People 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 give you positive reinforcement, and then along the way, I certainly enjoyed science. I enjoyed math, uh, enjoyed it more than some of the social sciences, English. So, you know, my, my brain and my, my enjoyment in school tended to gravitate towards the sciences. So that, so to speak, was convenient along the way. And so it was kind of just kind of always just the path that I was on. Basically, there really wasn't much wavering, uh, never, nothing really either jumped out and said, I wanted to pursue that or, if I ever seemed interested, it potentially got, got, you know, you know, minimized or said, no, doctor's the way you should go. And either way, that's the way I kind of always had the master plan. Great. And so you went to uh, undergrad at UCLA, is that right? Yeah, I went to undergrad at UCLA, which is, you know, five, six miles from where I grew up. And I grew up in a huge UCLA household. So there was not much question if I got in, whether I was going to go or not. It was pretty much that was that was the plan as well. So more as an issue of just getting in. Uh, but, uh, sure. so, and then, you know, in, in college, 
you know, actually it's, it's funny. My, my med school experience was really dictated by my college experience. So I, you know, got into college and without spending uh, an entire podcast talking about my college years, needless to say college wasn't the top priority right? Um, really for a good three years. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you're supposed to go to school for four years, taking the first three off is not really the best plan of attack. I relate to that Uh, as well. (laughs) So, so really by that, I ended up going to college undergrad for five years, but by those last two years, I was like, Oh, if I want to go to med school, I kind of really need to do something different. And to the point where I needed to kind of get an A plus in every class pretty much I took, I think after three years of college, I had like a two point seven GPA. And for anybody in med school or wanting to go to med school, you know, that's not really going to do the trick. It's not a competitive um, GPA right right there. So but you I, turned it I on. Literally, yeah. Those last two years, I mean, I literally did, um, you know, do whatever I needed to do to ensure there was no question of I was going to get near perfect in a class. So I, and I still got rejected, I think from, I applied to tons of schools. I don't know, 40 some schools just wow. checking boxes on the master application. And in yeah. California, you, you knew you likely weren't going to a, a university of California med school unless you had stellar, stellar grades. So I applied everywhere. And I think I got rejected from I don't know, 40, five of 48 schools or something like that. So it was, it was, you know, my whole experience was getting into med school. And so once I got to med school, I had essentially felt like there was no stress anymore to some extent. So my med school experience very much became, you know, dictated by that, that college experience. So when I got into med school, I was just so happy to be there. Um, and, and like the pressure was off, there was, I didn't really worry about grades anymore. I, I, I was just there and I was happy to, to be there. And so I think for me, med school ended up being a lot less stressful than I guess I would say probably the average student, you know, some of it was mindset. Some of it, I just spent two years learning how to take classes and get near perfection. So I was a pretty good student by that point in terms of how I studied, what I needed to do. Uh, And so you know, I think med school just, I don't want to use the term relaxing. That's probably a little too strong of a, a term, but I, it just, well, I, think I was, you said the pressure was off Yeah. at that point. Is that, I mean, yeah. that, that makes sense to me that you'd kind of, you know, been applying to this club and they said, okay, now you're part of the club. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I think that that kind of made, you know, med school a, a pretty positive, you know, experience. I was, I was pretty happy. I think the bulk of the time through, through med school, you know, to the point if you interviewed some of my classmates, I'm guessing that would have come off as potentially a little cocky or arrogant at time, I would suspect. Uh, but that's just, it was just cause that's the way it was. I wasn't really that few times in my life. I was very much living in the moment. That's not actually my strong suit, no matter how much I practice it. Uh, but I think med school, even to some extent residency, and not really thinking much about anything beyond that. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's uh, let's get into how you ended up choosing a residency and, and choosing a specialty that uh, interested you. Um, what was that process yeah. like for you? Well, again, a lot of it was just based on 
you know, kind of that model I had in my head, I'm going to be a doctor. And for me, a doctor was just, you know, an outpatient kind of primary care doctor. Again, that, that vision of kind of what my grandfather was. So that was kind of, I think, in my head that that's, that's just what I'm going to do. And again, always got reinforced. So Mm -hmm. I never really strayed. And then as I did rotations, I think to some extent, nothing really jumped out at me. You know, I think I, I would have paid attention uh, if I really enjoyed some, you know, rotation, if I, oh, OBGYN was the greatest thing I would have, you know, certainly, but gravitated that way, but nothing really stood out. Uh, surgery really wasn't my thing. I just wasn't great with my hands and I'm more of a cerebral kind of person, like to spend time thinking about things. It's not really the skill set, you know, for a good surgeon. So, you know, I enjoyed seeing surgery, but I got bored after about 20 minutes. And so it was clear that wasn't my direction. And so I just kind of always had in my head, you know, general primary care. I didn't know the difference between family medicine and internal medicine initially. And as I went through the, the, you know, practice, I I thought about pediatrics and then I thought about med peds, family internal, just kind of sorting all those out. And what it really boiled down to when I did my pediatrics rotation, I really enjoyed inpatient pediatrics. Uh, Didn't enjoy outpatient pediatrics from a standpoint of medicine. I enjoyed it from a standpoint, wow, it's cool to see all these awesome cute kids and, you know, whatnot. But it wasn't, it just wasn't that stimulating. Inpatient peds I really liked because kids get better, whereas adults don't necessarily always get better. Mm, And so I really toyed with med peds for a while. But in the end, I think it was one, there just weren't as many programs. And you know, I thought what I liked about the peds was the kind of the internal medicine aspect. And so I just kind of finally said internal medicine, you know, kind of makes the most sense. And then since I always had this vision of kind of primary care, it was kind of a no brainer to, to kind of go down a primary care track path, or at least look at residencies that kind of had a little bit of a primary care focus more than others. Yeah, I'm curious about that. So you, you went to residency at uh, University of Colorado where you did med school. Um, and then you, um, you also did the primary care track in the internal medicine residency program there. So can you break that down for us, what it would be like to be in that track versus not that track or a different track? Yeah, there were really, you know, kind of three major differences. Uh, the first one was just less inpatient time. I don't recall exactly. I think, I think, the regular internal medicine track was 10 months of inpatient and two months of outpatient, at least the first two years, maybe the third year, there was a little more flexibility. Whereas I think we had eight months of inpatient and four months of outpatient rotations. So there was a little less inpatient time and and more outpatient rotations, not just in our clinic, but in, in outpatient specialties, dermatology or, you know, allergy, things like that. So that was one big difference, just a little less inpatient time. We still, I believe, had the same ICU requirements. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure. Then we also had two half days a week of clinic throughout residency instead of one half day a week of clinic, which was standard for the regular internal medicine track. So not not tons more. I mean, I guess it's double. So percentage-wise, it's it's a lot more. Right. Uh, Still, two half days a week is not not a lot. It doesn't sound like a lot. That kind of surprises me. Yeah. Um, so it was double, but still not that much. And then the third was we had, I think there was 10 or 12 of us in the primary care tract out of like 45 total 
primary or internal medicine residents. So we had some, not that often, maybe at most once a week, probably more like twice a month, where we just got together with the 10 of us and had some coursework, uh, maybe more like billing and coding stuff or, or just other kind of outpatient, you know, discussions. Uh, I don't remember all the lectures, but I think it was, some of it was practical, you know, logistically practical, like, like I said, billing or coding, things like that. Some of it was maybe a little bit more time. Uh Oh, we might've lost you for that. I think we lost you for a second there, but I think we're back. Oh, sorry. No. Okay. Excellent. So, so those were the three things, a little less inpatient time, you know, more clinic, and then a little bit of just coursework or curriculum that was kind of focused towards us um, on various outpatient topics. Uh, otherwise, it was a complete, I mean, we were fully integrated within the main internal medicine program. Half right. the people didn't even know, you know, we were in a different track for that, I would bet. Are there other tracks for internal med? When, I mean, now I, I don't, I haven't spent much time in the academic space, really any time in the academic space. So I don't know. Back then, there were some primary care residencies or primary care tracks, and that was it. There was no, I mean, hospitalists really weren't, I mean, they were just starting. This was, mm-hmm. I, I was in residency from 2000 to 2003. So there was some hospitalists, I think, just starting, but there weren't hospitalist tracks or inpatient-only tracks or anything. Uh, so it was pretty much primary care or just general and and even few places had primary care focus or tracks and it was you know a standard internal medicine residency was your good 10 11 months of inpatient you know rotations and that that's that's what training was even for people who were going to go into primary care yeah i'm trying to i'm trying to make sense of what i know what little i know of you and your practice uh, these days, and trying to kind of juxtapose that to me trying to picture you in training, because um, I know you're kind of more towards the alternative or complementary uh, medicine side of primary care uh, these days. I don't, I don't know if those are the words you would use to describe yourself and your practice, um, but I'm kind of curious how much of the stuff that you use on a daily basis or stuff that you think about on a daily basis was stuff that you got trained in back in residency. Yeah. Nowadays, I would say at least the specifics, very little, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts, the big picture stuff, I think that's still very much there. And, and interesting, you know, my, you know, and it depends who I talk to, what term I use, uh, you know, I call what I do just good medicine, but yeah. you know, in, in the, in the world that that's not the terms people know. So I'll, I'll, I'll I use integrative medicine the most, okay. uh, I use functional medicine some, but I, nowadays I do, I use the term integrative medicine more, but the simple reality is all the way my career is take gone and how I practice now, the philosophies I have in, in medicine, uh, that was most definitely not there in in residency at all. So my natural my natural instinct to question and critically think was probably there, but I had no concept that a world outside of what I was being taught 
even existed. Just I didn't even know what a DO was for that matter until my fourth year of med school when I was on a visiting rotation mm-hmm. um, in San Francisco and I was talking to some guy and he was like, oh, I go to DO school. I was like, what's that? I, I'd never even heard of that. So <laughs> right. I didn't know anything about chiropractic or I didn't know about other alternative medicines. And and so it was, it was you know, I was being trained and and was very good at what you would call strict kind of conventional allopathic training. I just, I didn't know anything else existed, but I think I, I learned to see things that weren't working in my training very well. You know, mostly you're doing inpatient. So you see the failure kind of of the outpatient system because you see people keep coming in the hospital for either repeat things, things that could be prevented and when I say failure of the system, that's, you know, everybody involved, doctors, patients, families, you know, the industry, you know, it's just, it's a failure. It's not anybody one specific fault. But so I think what I really learned in residency beyond the nuts and bolts of great inpatient care, uh, which is really what residency is really does. And so I learned that well, when it comes to kind of my career in outpatient medicine and primary care. I really learned more about the failures of primary care, I think. And and I didn't know there was other options at the time, but I started to recognize something's not working well in the outpatient setting. And so I, I I definitely started to recognize that. And especially as we got to the end, even when I started my first practice, which was, you know, right out of residency, uh, the lady I started with, we already had discussions of, wow, we, we know some things already that aren't working that we want to do a little differently in our practice. Uh, and again, this was still even before I kind of had integrative medicine ideas, but just basics of how you see patients. I spend time with patients. I mean, that was really it. We said, oh, we want to have a practice where we get to spend time with patients. That was kind of still a relatively foreign concept um, at the time um, or, or shunned concept, basically. Right. People was like, oh, you can't do that. That's not going to work. Um, and we were like, well, we're going to figure out a way to make that work. Um, yeah. What so- about it? would people say isn't going to work? It's not going to work financially. It's not going to work, you know, if, um, procedurally or logistically? Yeah. I mean, at the time, I think a lot of it was financial, you know, people say, like, Oh, you, you know, you got to see this many patients to, you know, make, you know, this much revenue to, to kind of keep the doors open. Um, and there was always the thing as, Oh, you can only take so many Medicare patients cause they need more time and, it, and they get reimbursed less. So if you're spending more time with them, you, you can't see more patients. Mm-hmm. And so there was just, a lot of that's just the way it that's just the way it is i mean even back then you know uh, physician extenders pas nurse practitioners weren't really a big thing just quite yet there were certainly certainly they were there but they weren't the staple in outpatient care that they are now so that wasn't really what people were saying oh this will help and and so there was just a lot of you know, that's just the way it is, you know, kind of type thing. And, and this and, is even you know, in we a, working. a small private practice that, um, that you were in. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. This was, we, I started with just two of us, you know, we were, it was a brand new practice. So built from scratch, uh, but essentially built on the dime of, of a healthcare system here in Denver. So I worked, uh, for, Rose Hospital, or which is eight, you know owned by HCA, which owns a bunch of hospitals in Denver. So they own the practice, but 
we built it from scratch. So it was, a, you know, kind of a win-win for us. We, we got the ability to kind of build things kind of the way we, we felt, um, within, you know, kind of some understanding that they were paying the bills and we had to, to some extent, do what they wanted. Um, and, but we had a fair amount of leeway, at least initially. And, and, and so I got to see that literally from the ground up and, and we just set things up. You know, we, we just, we had some really good advice from our primary care clinic. And this is where you kind of learn luck of the draw when you get to residency. So it's CU, internal medicine residency. There were two primary care clinics where you could go. Mm-hmm. Um, ours was um, run by a lady who really, I guess I would say kind of believed in trying to train people who could run a business as an outpatient physician. So we got lots of training and coding and billing and saying, Hey, if you code correctly and bill correctly, that's going to help you big time. And that's a way to see, you know, spend more time with patients. Uh, the other clinic was a much more higher volume clinic. Um, there was, you know, it was always kind of known at the time is, is a clinic that was just kind of doling out pain medicines left and right, whether, you know, that was, hundred percent accurate or not, you know, I don't know because I was never there. But so we we learned some skills about already how to run a practice that was really unique to our clinic and our head attending at that clinic. I mean, I'm sure other programs maybe do that well. So we came out knowing how to code phenomenally. So we didn't, you know, we never undercoded or shorted ourselves reimbursement. So I think that helped. We had a dedication that we're going to spend time with patients. And, you know, at the time that was still a 20 minute visit compared to the average, which was like 10 minutes. So it's still not tons of time, but it was just a priority of ours. We started again in 2003 and we said, we're, we're going to use electronic medical records from the get-go, which was, you know, almost unheard of at the time. There was Hmm. in Denver, maybe a dozen practices using electronic records, but so we're going to use this effectively to, to, to be a, you know, benefit to us. Now people complain about it, that it's a burden and it slows them down. And, but we, again, it took a year to get the EMR system in. So we didn't quite use it from the get-go, but, you know, we built and custom, well, we, we customized an EMR program to be able to speed our flow up and, and made it work. So it, it, we did a pretty good job. I would say in terms of kind of conventional allopathic primary care, which if you follow it, kind of the guidelines and you follow all the protocols, you, you can do it pretty quickly. Um, I don't think as I've changed, that's necessarily the best way to go about it, but uh, we were we were efficient and, and growing. So it was, you know, there was a lot of things we came in with. And then as it was there, we, we certainly saw a lot of things, wow, this works better we want to do it this way. And then there were times where we would get pushback from the hospital for costs or other things. And, you know, then it became, okay, we're in this corporate world that doesn't seem to have the same goals as we do. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting to me that, you know, you say you didn't know all the details of what you would, you know, later use, um, you know, more prevalently in your practice and as, uh, you know, the tools of integrative medicine, um, but you did have the same fundamental kind of mission statement that you have now, which is that you want to do well for your patients and you're going to do, you know, you're going to 
make adjustments to be able to see them for longer visits or um, do whatever you can to to be beneficial to them. Um, but you were just about to kind of launch into talking about what are some of those things that you saw that weren't working? Because I'm curious about that, if there's any big things that come to mind or maybe little things that you saw that was conventional medicine standard of practice at the time, but it wasn't really working for you or your patients or just the whole setup. Yeah. I mean, in residency, again, I think a lot of it was the things I noticed, again, people would come in with either acute exacerbations of chronic disease or just kind of repeat problems. So again, there was obviously some disconnect, you know, that was, that was clearly obvious. And, and what one thing I, I kind of saw where I, I started kind of growing a little, I don't know, dis, disen, disengaged or a little annoyed by the, the system was the, the blame was almost a hundred percent of the time on the patient. Yeah. Um, if, if things weren't going well, you know, oh, just so-and-so doesn't quit smoking or so-and-so doesn't eat right or, or you know, whatnot. And anytime it, the blame was just essentially always on the patients. And that <clears throat> was kind of, it wasn't blatant. Like that's not like, you know, what you would hit in morning report where people would be like just going off on the patient, but it was just the tone. There was never, we have a re- different responsibility as a system, as a culture, as doctors, So that was kind of there in residency. And then again, I saw in residency, I saw people come in all the time on all the quote, right meds. So just take, you know, cardiovascular disease, which is obviously our our biggest, you know, you know, chronic disease and cause of death. You know, people came in all the time on their statin, on their beta blocker, on their ACE inhibitor, on their, you know, diuretic or, you know, whatever appropriate meds they were on. Mm-hmm. Yet they kept coming back. And so I was like, okay, well, great. We'll fix you up. You'll get your angioplasty or you'll get ruled out for an MI or whatever you need. And then you just go back and we had nothing else to offer. Like if you were already on all the four meds or five meds you were on, yeah. it was just like, all right, well, we'll come back in a year or six months and you know, we'll fix you again. And there's no, well, let's get it. The problem there. So it was either, you know, blame the patient for not taking their meds or not doing something, or if everything seemed to be right, just, oh, well, that's just the way it is. That's the best people, we can do. People can't, people can't, that's the best we can do. People can't get better. And so, yeah, you know, it just, and I don't know if I was consciously thinking about that at the time, but it certainly kind of made me much more amenable as I got further in my career to other options, because it was clear, you know, from that inpatient experience. And then when I got out in, in practice and I, you know, I kind of started practicing and I, I said, but I do what I would say call up-to-date medicine. So, you know, most people know up-to-date is kind of a comprehensive kind of medical education online textbook, basically. Well, one online when I started, it was a CD, but, oh, uh, really? uh, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, now but, it's just you know, a, you, like Wikipedia, basically it's yeah, updated it has, by physicians yeah, and healthcare yeah, workers. Yeah. Exactly. And it updates the, you know, with all the current research and, but again, it's very cookie cutter textbook. You, know, you ever, you know, put people on all the right meds and make the right diagnoses and and give them the right labels, and they they just kind of never really got better. Or if they did get better from one thing, 
other things would just develop. So someone would come in with hypertension, pretty easy to get their numbers looking better. Yeah. But then, you know, six months later, they would have this complaint. And I was like, okay, well, now you need this med. And it, I would get to the point where it's, it was obvious what I was doing wasn't working. But I, and so I, again, I think I was just, it just reinforced what I'd saw in residency that just doing exactly what I'm taught and told isn't the best plan. It doesn't have the basic patient's best interest in heart more often than not. Um, I kind of yeah. wanted to ask about that model of practice. Um, you referred to functional medicine uh, earlier or integrative medicine, or, I mean, you, you, uh, I liked how you just said you call it just good old medicine. Um, but can we get a, a, a definition of functional medicine or is it not even, uh, you know, worth our time to, to define? Like no, that? I think there's a, I think there's a definition and, and I think it's different than integrative medicine. I mean, I do look at those as two different evolutions in my career mm-hmm. and two different kind of descriptive terms, although there's certainly a high amount of overlap. I would say functional medicine certainly falls within the realm of integrative medicine, integrative medicine being a little more inclusive. Okay. But functional medicine, I would really describe as one solely a chronic disease uh, medicine. You know, functional medicine is to evaluate, treat, reverse uh, chronic disease. Functional medicine while some of the concepts are certainly valid for acute care, mm-hmm. um, it's really a chronic disease approach. So that's kind of one difference right from the get-go. Okay. Um, and then functional medicine is really defined as a root cause approach to someone's chronic disease. You're identifying the root causes for whatever their disease label or labels are, and you're addressing and treating the root cause kind of not specifically treating kind of the disease itself. So a perfect example, you know, might be, you know, with rheumatoid arthritis or really any autoimmune condition, Mm -hmm. you know, the goal in a functional medicine approach will be to identify, you obviously have rheumatoid arthritis, you have some autoimmune condition, you have an overactive immune system damaging the body. So that everybody agrees on. A functional medicine approach is going to say, we're going to look for and identify all the causes and triggers that are causing your immune system to be overactive and treat those rather than just treating one specific pathway in that disease. So, you know, classic treatment, say for rheumatoid arthritis, is um, what we call monoclonal antibodies to um, interferon alpha, for example. Mm-hmm. So that we're going to say, okay, we agree that too much inflammation the part of the cause of, of rheumatoid arthritis, conventional medicine says we're going to use one or more medicines to just treat specific parts of the inflammation pathway. And, and it certainly can work pretty well. I mean, don't get me wrong. People can have remarkable responses to various medications, certainly better than doing nothing. But in functional medicine, we're going to say, we want to know why your immune system's overactive in the first place. We might use various agents to kind of just temper the immune system and temper the immune response. But we're going to look at why your immune system's overactive in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then there's a whole host of reasons, genetic, lifestyle, um, looking at other systems of the body that would be seemingly unrelated uh, and correcting all those core imbalances. 
and kind of letting the body take care of the autoimmune disease by itself. So functional medicine, the easiest way is it's the root cause approach. You're looking at the root causes of chronic disease and treating those root causes kind of independent of what the disease is in the first place. So you're going to do the exact same evaluation no matter what the complaint is. Someone comes in with depression, someone comes in with joint pain, someone comes in with cardiovascular disease, you're going to do the same core eval because you're looking for root causes and you can't identify those without looking at all the systems. And a lot of that's through history and and, and exam. It's not all testing, uh, mm-hmm. but it, it's it's just you're you're using the disease as a starting point Whereas in kind of conventional allopathic training, the goal, your disease is your endpoint. In, in conventional training, once you got a diagnosis, you're done. You've got a protocol or an algorithm that you, here's how you treat it. Here's the meds or other treatments you use. But your goal is just to get a disease and then your, your job is done as a physician. You just pick the right treatments for that disease. Right. Functional medicine, the disease is solely the starting point. And you spend the bulk of your time identifying the root causes, contributing to that disease, and then treating those root causes. To me, it sounds fantastic on paper. Um, yeah. And how could how could that go wrong in my head? But um, you know, I, I want to explore how how does that um, actually work on a you know kind of a day to day basis or patient to patient basis? It seems like there would be a lot more time spent, not just a good healthy amount of time spent, but just my worry is that there would be way too much time spent or, you know, chasing a a rabbit down a hole. Um, or is that not uh, really the case? Yeah, no, it's there. It's not a perfect, well, it might be a perfect system if, (laughs) if it could be enacted and, and, and everything identified. So I, I would say it is a perfect model in terms of you identify root causes, fix those, pretty much everyone gets better. Yeah. Um, yeah. In practice, there's some, some challenges. Um, and it requires, it requires a lot of change from a lot of parties. So time is huge mm-hmm. on a lot of fronts. Certainly the physician needs more time with the patient to really understand their, their whole life history and their whole life story, because that's where you start seeing patterns developed and that's where you start seeing. But so, but that can be done. There's plenty of practices where, you know, yeah, maybe that first visit 60 or 90 minutes or two hours, which is, you know, unheard of in, in many areas, but, but that still can be fit in. There's ways to do that. Um, where the time issue, it's still a challenge because, you know, physicians time is, is valuable physicians, are, you know, professional and, you know, the hourly rate of a professional is is significant. So even if you're taking insurance, um, it's you know a physician's time is is valuable and it has a reimbursement associated with that more than many other areas. So where where the time issue becomes is is there's an offloading of other activities once you get into the treatment process. The physician is not as required for the treatment once that functional medicine plan is created. You know, as you identify causes and you look at nutritional factors, lifestyle factors, all the things that are going to be part of your treatment plan, most of that does not need to be guided by a physician. Uh, Often some patients just take that and run with it themselves and are very highly motivated and come back six or 12 months later and be like, yep, I feel great. I did everything you said was going to be needed and feel great. 
Other times they need a lot of guidance. I'd say more often than not, they need guidance, but there's other people who can really serve that role, whether it's nutritionists, health coaches, family. So a lot of having an effective functional medicine model is not having the physician kind of do everything, especially once you get past kind of the the first or second visit where you're doing that thorough workup Mm -hmm. and eval. And so that's become key. The other huge area, which is going to be, I think, where we will eventually go and and hopefully maybe even go even in a conventional setting is the usefulness of groups. Uh, You know, there's just support groups and just group visits, you know, especially in functional medicine where no matter what disease someone's coming in with, often you're treating similar root causes. You're treating too much inflammation. You're treating an overactive fight or flight response in the body. And those are the two, you know, I would say biggest root causes uh, is, you know, overactive inflammation and overactive fight or flight response, sympathetic, sympathetic drive. And so that's true across a wide range of conditions. So a lot of the treatments, or at least I would say, you know, it's a kind of standard 80-20 rule. You could have diverse range of conditions and diverse range of patients 80% 80% of the treatments probably going to be similar for those patients cuz it is a lot of that learning to reduce basic inflammatory triggers and and sympathetic, you know, fight or flight triggers. So a lot of that can be done in groups, group education. So if you're teaching dietary changes, why say the same thing over and over again, you know, one-on-one when you can say it in a group and not just save time that way, but group support has been shown to be, you know, valuable in many areas. I mean, some of the best studies are in GYN, you know, GYN offices that do group visits and group work with, uh, you know, pregnant moms show marked, marked reduces in you know, preterm birth and low birth weight and in a whole variety of, you know, conditions. And there's, there's data from other areas as well. So the group support is hugely powerful. Uh, so especially when you're trying to make a lot of behavioral change, which is you know, at the core of most functional medicine treatment plans. Yeah. So there's ways to, there's ways to do it. It's no doubt harder, um, but there's, there's also ways to do it in a, I guess I would say a non-comprehensive fashion. So before I closed my private practice, I was what you would call a comprehensive functional medicine practice. That was, you know, cash pay, not, not a, you know, not not cheap, not something that the average, frankly, American even could afford. Yeah. That was just the model I was in. And so that's one way to go about it. But you can practice functional medicine, especially as part of primary care. And I know, you know, some of the thoughts you had, you know, about just primary care and, you know, what's good about it and, you know, why is primary care a good thing? And, you know, the biggest reason why primary care is a good thing is because you have time. You develop relationships in, in theory. Um, you develop trust between, you know, the practitioner and the patient. And so you can practice root cause medicine or at least start educating. So that same patient that came in with rheumatoid arthritis, even if you're just a run-of-the-mill primary care practice where you don't have all the time, you can just start saying, okay, well, let's get you to a rheumatologist. Let's take your Humira or whatever prescription. But here, just so you know, we want to start treating the root cause of your rheumatoid arthritis. And you could slowly educate that patient over two, three years 
and start digging into those root causes, slowly identify them, learn more about that patient, you know, maybe see them a little bit more frequently, not just for when they need labs or, or, you know, refills or whatever. And maybe it takes three years to identify some things, but, and they've got conventional medicine in the meantime, they've got their meds, they're, they're, they're kind of treating it, but you can do it slowly as well, just with one little piece of advice at a time or, Hey, let's, let's just have you see this nutritionist, you know, you can refer out to a nutritionist in 10 seconds, you know, if, but if there's trust there, so functional medicine doesn't have to be this huge comprehensive practice where people are spending tons of money and doing it. It, It's really just how you're thinking about the disease. But again, we're not trained to think of root cause. We're trained to just diagnose and be done. And so it's it's the training that needs to change about how physicians think about it. Then there's all kinds of ways to implement it. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, that's great points about um, just the way that you think about a disease can, can be the model that you're practicing in essentially. Yeah. And, and a lot of physicians are doing that without ever hearing the term functional medicine. Yeah. So even the basics, if someone comes in with diabetes and and you say, oh, I, I think, you know, diet and exercise is going to be important. And of course you could argue about what's the right diet and exercise. That's, that's a secondary topic. But if you yeah. go, I think diet and exercise is important for your diabetes, you're practicing functional medicine. You know, if, if someone comes in with you know, any symptom and, and, you know, insomnia and you go, wow, and you ask a couple questions and you find whatever their, their son has a medical problem or, you know, they just got fired or they're just, they're moving and wow. Okay. Now you're saying all this, your, your life is playing a factor. What are some ways to relax or, okay, well, you're practicing functional medicine because you're identifying the root cause. You're not just saying, oh, you've got insomnia. I have a treatment for that. You might use the treatment, but you're, as long as you're addressing a root cause. And so physicians do that all the time. They, they have some knowledge, but they just don't do it broadly enough. Or like you say, have enough time to, you know, think about it or, or be willing to think about it because they're so, so trained to just label and treat. And, and so it, we all have the skills to root cause is common sense. It doesn't really take that much training. It just takes, taking a step back and being like, wow, how's this person really being affected? And and so we all have those skills. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was going to, I was thinking that same thing that basically I can't think of a provider that would say that they don't practice root cause medicine or say that they don't practice preventive medicine. Everybody thinks that they do or says that they do and, you know, kind of has it in their mind that those are good things to to do for the patient's sake. Yeah. If you interview physicians, they'll say that. Uh, but as someone who has seen, you know, a lot of patients who have come from other physicians, um, you know, not in, not in practice, you know, it's, it's just not being. You know, I see, I mean, well, well, I'm sure we'll, can you hear me? I saw the video go out. Yeah, it's not being emphasized, you said. Yeah, so it's just not being emphasized. And and in some cases, it's downright, you know, being 
kind of ridiculed, you know, and this is now, of course, now there's a whole spectrum of physicians, you know, so, but I, the amount of people who have, you know, come in to see me and said, oh, I've got whatever chronic pain. And I say, oh, has anyone ever talked to you about um, food being a factor in, in your pain levels? I mean, I would say 90 plus percent would say no. Now, again, maybe they didn't hear it, but it clearly wasn't made a priority or they would have heard it. Um, I've had people come in with inflammatory bowel disease, all kinds of different GI symptoms. And they, they've said things like, well, I asked my doctor, I, I, you know, I thought it might be the food I ate. And they told me, oh, what you eat doesn't matter. And it's like, how could the food you eat not matter for anything, but nonetheless an intestinal disorder? Yeah. So it, it's, <laughs> there's, there's clearly, you know, what physicians self-rate is, is not quite what's happening in practice. And, and again, we have statistics, you know, statistics, at least in family medicine, internal medicine is probably a little longer, but I think the average family medicine visit is seven and a half minutes or 7.9 minutes or something like that. So just on sheer facts, if your average visits eight minutes long or 10 minutes long, or even 15 minutes long, there's only so much information you could give in that time. So you can't be stressing it too much if half of your time is spent on making sure refills are done or talking about lab results. And so there, there's, there's, there's just, the, you know, as with many things, the, the facts don't always support what, what, what people are, are, are saying. So a lot of that goes back to training and how we're teaching physicians. We're really teaching physicians to diagnose and treat because that's how you deal with acute disease. And that's the right way to deal with acute disease. And, you know, when someone walks into the ER with chest pain, you should very much be able to diagnose and then treat them appropriately, or they're likely going to die. Um, yeah. You know, if they have something life-threatening, that's not how chronic disease works. And that's, you know, arguably the biggest differentiating factor what a functional or integrated medicine doctor will say is the conventional system treats all chronic disease the same as acute disease, where we approach chronic disease completely differently. And, and the acute care model doesn't work for chronic disease because there's not, there's never going to be one cause. So you have to address all the causes. Uh, and that's, that's where the biggest disconnect in training is. And that's what, that's the training physicians just simply don't get. Yeah, I actually wanted to kind of pick your brain a little bit more about just the nature of chronic disease. We definitely have a ton of modern day epidemics and and so many of them are chronic disease, uh, diabetes, hypertension, vitamin D deficiency, thyroid conditions, autoimmune conditions, you know, depression, mental health, cardiovascular um, let me ask you a leading question, if I may, because I think I know yeah. where you'll take this. But why do all those exist, and what can we do about it? At you know, from where we're at right now. Yeah. Well, it's you know, it's my answer is actually probably a little more nebulous than specific because if you talk to somebody, or if you talk to certain people, say in my uh, functional medicine world, 
they might be very specific. Oh, it's clearly due to the change from a paleolithic, you know, culture to a farming culture and agricultural society. And, and that's the reason yeah. other people will say, oh, it's over a reliance on animal products and things of that nature. And so some people are very specific as to this is what the downfall is. I'm, I'm always a kind of in the middle. It might be too strong, but I'm always looking at things from all... I, answers. I, I almost never believe there's a, a correct answer. And certainly when it comes to chronic disease, but it's, it's still, it's really boils down to a change in our society. And so certainly our food supply has an effect on development of chronic disease. Certainly our, you know, the development of electricity and our disruption of our sleep cycles, you know, has an impact on, on chronic disease, you know, in Western culture now increased isolation um, no kidding. you know, has an effect on, on chronic disease. And so there, there are multiple factors, but one of them is not necessarily the most important or the right one. And that's where I think that's what physicians have to spend time doing is talking to their patients, getting good histories and identifying which of those factors are most important. So going gluten-free is not going to save us from chronic disease. Yeah. You know, that it might save some people from chronic disease if you kind of identify gluten's a big inflammatory trigger for that person. For somebody else, it might be have an abusive relationship and they're not going to heal until that abusive relationship or the dealing with the trauma from that relationship has been addressed. For other people, it's lots of little things. So really the, the rise of chronic disease is that there's a lot more root causes that have come up. And again, they come from our food supply. They, they come from our cultural, you know, way of life. Um, certainly the overuse of chemicals and, and pesticides and, and other environmental toxins is, is huge, but there's, there's literally thousands of new things that weren't here, right. you know? And so, you know, that makes the job of a functional medicine doctor hard because now you've got a thousand root causes. You need to figure out which ones are the most important but again, when you do it over and over again and you practice this way for a while, you do find themes and patterns. And like I said, 80% of the people can get better with the basics. And so it's not, it's not quite as hard as you might think to, to address chronic disease if kind of people would accept the fact that these things are, are, are problems, I guess. So Well, when you say these things, I'm... I guess that you're talking about basically all of modern life or not all of it. I should say a lot of modern life. Um, Cause you brought up, you know, so many just staples of how we live, yeah. whether it be, you know, uh, electric light keeping us up f for, you know, um, you know, well into the night or our food or our sedentary nature or our kind of stress over you know, modern troubles of such as finances or education or politics. Um, but you're saying kind of all of these huge factors in, in what we call, you know, modern life contribute to chronic disease in some way or another. Yeah, it, it's certainly a multifactorial because we see, you know, we see examples where, where the things we might blame aren't causing a problem in, in a certain community. So, you know, one, one group may say, oh, the problem is, 
you know, too much, you know, fat or saturated fat in the world. So that might be one area of thought and somebody's going to do tons of research and say that's, that's the area. Mm -hmm. But then you'll see multiple communities that do well from a standpoint of chronic disease that have plenty of saturated fat, you know, and other, like I said, we'll say it's animal products or gluten. And, but you see communities who have those as staples and are still doing well. Yeah. So, so it's, again, it's, yeah, there's multiple factors. There's, there's multiple things. And so you can't change. I mean, it, for certain aspects of society, I think could be changed. And I think there's some ways you could clean up food supply and environmental issues, you know, without that much effort, but you know, there's, you kind of have to go, you start with the basics. And so people can learn to figure out how to um, kind of combat some of these things, which are staples, but, um, but using, you know, the knowledge we have and getting that education out there. So, I mean, even something as simple as is, uh, you know, electricity and light, you know, that we all now have, you know, night mode features on our phones. We, you know, we have the ability to wear blue light blocking glasses. We have the ability to get bright sunshine in the morning. Most people do. Uh, we have the ability to boost vitamin D levels if you live in a place where there's no sun. And so we have ways to kind of combat some of these things. We, not everybody has to go live on a farm and make all their own food and, and you know, you know, live solely by the, you know, the solar schedule, yeah. but we have to be aware these things are important and we have to have our physicians and our practitioners reinforcing that these things are important. When you go to the doctor and they just say, oh, you should eat better and that's all you get and they spend all their time with your labs and your meds, it's not reinforcing that this is important in the first place. And so we, we need as a culture, certainly as a, as a medical, you know, culture to kind of reinforce that, no, these simple things that are part of your everyday life are extraordinarily powerful and valuable. And again, you don't have to give up everything at once. You don't have to change your, your whole life around, but it, you just need to be reinforced that these things are issues. And if you don't, kind of take them seriously, you're going to be sick later on. You know, the default now is for nearly 100% of people to have a chronic disease by the age of 50 or 60. I mean, that's, I don't know what the numbers are exactly now. We're not quite at a hundred percent, but we're already pretty high. Yeah. And so that's just become accepted, which is completely crazy to me. Why, why do we, ex why do we accept that everybody has to be, have a chronic disease and be sick and, and take medication that that's that's kind of standard we, we accept that as the norm and in, as long as we accept that we're not going to make it a priority to change anything and so that means change anything for an individual which can be done very slowly and one step at a time changing things as a culture obviously as a society and as a country much more difficult because there's many more competing interests so you know the cultural things take time and you know you know, we, uh, we figure out how to do that, but on an individual basis, I've seen people from every single socioeconomic status from the person with three jobs to someone that has no job and all the money in the world. And I've seen all of them get better, but different things get different people better. So yeah. you just got to stress those as priorities and it is most definitely doable, but it's not where our priority is right now. Yeah. And I think most people, 
and uh, and what you're telling me is most doctors aren't trained to be equipped to prevent and treat chronic disease like like we're talking about. Um, so how how would a either a, a student of medicine or a um, you know somebody who's a practicing physician or and then I want to also hear about how would a patient go about like finding resources to help them um, you know better understand the these problems yeah lots of way and I you know there's, I mean there's a few kind of things you know when you say that jump up I would say from a physician standpoint you know the first is just just slow down a little bit and, and just go back to kind of common sense, uh, you know, just kind of be open. And then it starts with, I mean, there's different ways. Obviously you could go through quote, formal functional medicine education. I mean, there's the Institute of Functional Medicine that has essentially like a master's program mm -hmm. uh, in, in training and goes over a lot of this, but again, that's a lot of hours and a, a lot of time and money. And, and so it may not be what the average physician can just jump in to do, but so there is formal education and they're not the only group. There's other uh, folks, folks teaching this as well. I think a lot of it is talking to other practitioners and learning where they put some focus and just seeing, you know, what are the most high yield discussions, you know, you, you know, other practitioners have had with patients and then, can you hear me? I can. Yeah. Seems to, okay. Yep, sorry. It's uh, and then uh, it's a situation where you can start these things from day one. The things you already know about, again, even basics of you know nutrition, relaxation. Uh, you know what I kind of use the four pillars. That was kind of well, still the name of my my practice and and set up as you know four pillars and stands for food, movement, relaxation, and community. So I think you can always stress those things. You don't need training to be able to stress those things, even in, in brief instances. So I, I think, you know, you can just start doing it with patients and see how those patients do and gain more confidence. You know, there's so many places to learn. There's no, I wouldn't say there's the best. I, I had the luxury of this kind of be, I guess, slowly evolving from really my first days in practice when, I got introduced to some modalities that I, that I started adding. And, and so I had the luxury of kind of going slow, you know, I kind of, it just slowly evolved, but you know, there's, there's ways to learn about kind of nutrients, um, vitamins, minerals, supplements. There's just basic test textbooks of human nutrition that have been around since the seventies, you know, that go into how vitamins work in the body, how minerals work in the body. Um, and I'm not sure there's a, I'm not sure there's a best. And I mean, that's a theme you'll always hear me say, no matter what topic you ask me is you'll hear me say there's not a best because I, I'm a strong believer of there's never a best for, for that, that can be a one size fits all. Right. So and I, I think, think that, that I think oh, it, go ahead. Sorry. I, I was going to say, I think it's, I think it's dependent on how someone's practices and what their goal, you know, so if it's someone in, you know, training, you know, someone in med school, I would say starts by paying attention in biochemistry and all your basic physiology classes, because when you want to start identifying root cause and vitamin deficiencies and nutrient issues, 
um, you're going to be pulling out, you know, the Krebs cycle and things like that. I mean, I've, I've looked at the Krebs cycle more in the last six or seven years of practice than, than I ever did in training um, in med school. So, so I think if you're at your level, you know, it's really learning the biochemistry and because that, that is important when it comes to root cause and, and having that open mind that my goal as a physician is not just to label people. You know, if you're someone in a busy practice who's working, you know, 60 hours a week, you know, you don't have time to take three weeks off and go to a, you know, a course, you know, so there you, there you just have to really, you know, pick one thing. Oh, I want to learn, um, about this one area a little bit more. I want to learn about, you know, really what hydration does, or I want to learn about mindfulness and I'm going to, you know, practice on myself, you know, practicing on yourself is a great way. We talk about chronic disease being so prevalent. It's certainly prevalent amongst physicians and other healthcare practitioners. Yeah. So you, you kind of say, okay, I'm going to try this on myself. You know, your body as well as, you know, anybody else. So I'm going to start doing five minutes of mindfulness activity every day for the next 30 days. I just want to see what that experience is like. So when you're busy, start on yourself because you already need to do stuff for yourself. And then there's a million ways in between. So I think it's getting, it's kind of like we often use in functional medicine, we use kind of the practice model, very similar to we, to how we treat our patients. So for, if I'm talking to another physician, I kind of want that history. What's your life like? What's your practice like? Okay, here's my opinion on the things that are going to be most helpful for you immediately. It's no different than what I do really with a, with a patient. You're, you're just kind of seeing how can I fit these new ideas into my world. And so, like I said, it's a nebulous answer. But again, no matter what question you ask me, I can guarantee you I will say there's not a one-size-fits-all, you know, approach because I, I've seen that fail, you know, repeatedly throughout my entire medical career and certainly throughout, you know, what I, what I my knowledge, my knowledge of the the greater world outside the medicine as well. It's just one-size-fits-all does not work well for for humans. Yeah, I, I I'm with you on that. I think you know, like you said, kind of an, if you think that there's an answer for something that implies that somebody figured it out and that we can just trust that and, and not really have to critically analyze the processes that are going on. So we can just, uh, hang our hats on that. But I I like what you're saying that, you know, the reason that you got into medicine and a lot of other people is so that they can think critically so they can, you know, I think you refer to yourself as being kind of cerebral and, and, uh, liking to uh, think about disease processes and, and what's going on, what's going wrong with people so that we can help them find the, the right way. Yeah, it's, it's, and there's, there's a spot for everyone. I, I know one point in, in one of your, your questions was, you know, what do we do well? And, and without question, what we do well is acute care medicine. And so we need people who act and, you know, can, you know, be fearless and, you know, perform the most crazy, you know, surgeries in a traumatic situation. I mean, there's skill sets for everybody. I think we could probably do a better job in training of helping people understand what their skill sets are and, and give them better guidance. At least either I didn't get any guidance. I think I still ended up in the right place. Uh, or I, or I didn't listen to it if I was being given it, but I I don't know how much we're really, 
we ask people what they want to do or what they want to be. I'm not sure we spend enough time on, on what, what are your skills and what, what might be best suited for those skills. Yeah. Well, I think we definitely, I think, I think there's been improvement as of late. I think that, you know, more and more education in general and uh, medical education specifically is uh, thinking more about those things and, and trying to, um, you know, input guidance and, and um, to get people, you know, thinking about not only what they want to do, but why they want to do it. But well, I, I hope they, they continue that. And, and, and again, a lot of it is, you know, like I said, it doesn't have to be transformative, just like in the office, you don't have to have a complete functional medicine approach that transforms somebody's life from the get-go. In school, it's the same thing. I, you know, I, I talked to some of your professors after the time I spent on, on campus talking. And again, a lot of those themes were like, well, if we can just repeat some of these things, even, you know, that they're important, even, you know, kind of, you may not be where you're spending the most time, but these critical thinking skills, th this ability to really put the patient first, you know, making sure that that gets reiterated time and time again, even if it's not always the top priority, because that's not what be is being tested or that's not what's on the boards or, or whatnot. Um, I think medical education, and, and I think at least at your institution, I got the impression they were trying to do that. Um, just reminding students along the way that there is a bigger world than just what you're being taught. Uh, I would say I don't feel like I got that. I got what you're being taught is the way to do it and learn it and do it and don't don't really critically think. Uh, that was certainly the the gist of at least how I kind of felt I was being taught. Uh, and so, again, I think I think it it can be done in, in a lot of ways. Uh, but if nothing else is just reminding students that, um, th there's a pretty big world and don't assume everything you learn in med school and residency is, is, uh, is sacrosanct, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I think, uh, that's a good way for us to transition, but I, I want to, uh, just kind of do a time check with you, make sure that we're good on time. I am good on time. Not, not a lot of activities on my schedule okay. today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I appreciate you being so, uh, so generous. I mean, uh, it's, uh, it means a lot to me that you'll, uh, get into all these different topics with me. I kind of want to transition a little bit from talking yeah. about the practice of healthcare to your views on just the healthcare system in general. If you have any, I guess, specific viewpoints or insights onto, maybe what isn't working for us from a healthcare policy standpoint um, and, and maybe what do you think could, could work better for us? Yeah. I mean, I, I think on that topic, I kind of guess the biggest point of you know, contention or the biggest point I'd want to make is when I pay attention to healthcare debates, even going back to, you know, the affordable care act and, and certainly the got it. 12 years now since then or 11 years, whatever it's been. Yeah. Um, the debate is always about who is going to pay for things and how much people should get paid for things. That's the only <laughs> debate I've ever heard. And I'm not saying that debate is not important. Yeah. Uh, certainly is, but that's the only debate I hear being, being had. And to me, that is the far less important debate because again, you have to change healthcare delivery and mindset 
you know, from all the things we just talked about, I mean, chronic disease is what drives healthcare costs, no matter it's not heart attacks and, you know, you know, acute illness, it's chronic disease is something like 80 to 90% of all healthcare costs. So that's insane. So, so the problem is not who pays for it because you could go to a single payer system and all of a sudden, yes, individuals, healthcare costs are going to get better, but the government's now going to go broke or taxes will go through the roof to pay for it. And if you don't change how you administer it. So I think a lot of the things we just talked about in the approach to healthcare is still the bigger topic um, because if it's just who pays for it, whoever's paying for it's going broke. You know, it, we, we just, we spend too much and we already know that again, it's again, we know the data and this is that kind of, we talked earlier about physicians all saying they, they, if you interview them, they'll say, um, Oh, interview physicians now they'll usually say, Oh yes, our system is the best in the world. We we're great and we're doing things right. Or yes, this is, you know, would I like a little more time with patients or this, that, and the other, but no, the general way we practice medicine is still correct. But then you look at the data and the data is, you know, clear. I mean, we spend three times as much as the average industrialized nation and have worse outcomes on every single chronic health disease measure than nearly all of them. So I think there has to be some acceptance that what we're doing doesn't work. Um, And that's hard for people who have spent their entire career, both practicing and teaching and dictating healthcare policy to say, oh yeah, we were doing this wrong. I mean, that's, that's a pretty big shot to the gut to stand up and say that. Yeah. But we have to have our leaders in academics and healthcare policy literally stand up and, and say that and not necessarily blame people, but just be like, the blame's irrelevant. It, it just has to change. You know, when it comes to policy, you know, again, if you go to a single payer, it's possible when there's one payer regulating costs, they might start going, okay, well, now that we're paying, we want you to do it this way. Um, but it could also not be, it could be like, we're just going to keep trying to figure out ways to pay for what we're doing. That's not working. So I'm, I'm less optimistic on any specific financial plan for healthcare, uh, with, with, until you change how care is administered and even the changes, I mean, you may not know this because it's not really a priority for you to know this yet at, at this juncture, but there's been a big push to change from just paying on a service paid for services to paying for, so to speak, kind of quality, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that's been the big push now over the last decade. Oh, we're, we're paying for quality of care, not quantity. But again, those quality metrics are almost all kind of pharmaceutical driven metrics. Right. It's just going to be, you hit all these numbers. None of those metrics really look at patient quality of life, you know, things of that nature, how patients are feeling, you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's considered, quality of care if you have a depressed patient on an antidepressant. So when you fill out your EMR and you get reimbursed on quality, you don't get reimbursed if the patient's depression is well-treated. You only get reimbursed based on quality if the patient is on an antidepressant. Um, so quality really is not from the patient's point of view in our, even when we talk about quality metrics and quality measures. Yeah, that almost um, doesn't seem like any change. No, it's not. And again, there's, there's, I mean, that's not the only quality metric. So you could argue, well, a quality metric for a 
diabetic is a certain level of hemoglobin A1C. Um, and again, however you get there, um, as long as you get to a good A1C. But again, A1C is not the only indicator. You know, it's again, quality of life, you know, hospitalizations, other factors. So again, there, there's really, there's a lot of steps before we have, I guess I would say, effective healthcare policy. And I don't think there's any one law that will change things for the best. I, I really do think, you know, again, you need to do it on on a, not so much a smaller level, but on a priority level. We need to change how we, again, it goes back to critical thinking. You know, we need to change how we think about what we're doing uh, rather than just, you know, like I said, there's no law that's going to fix our healthcare system. You know, it's it's just going to be continued fighting over who's paying. The hope is that if you, you know, narrow down who pays, they might be more focused on actually cutting costs in, in, in a good way, but I'm, I'm not, that doesn't always happen either. So I'd rather it come from, I'd rather it potentially be a longer term process and come from the training of, of you guys and, and physicians leading the way and thinking about chronic disease differently again and then there's plenty of ways to make it affordable like i said groups are in, you know i mentioned earlier a hugely valuable way to make things affordable even with conventional treatment you know just seeing people together and getting support so i think there's a lot of tools but i think people need to be willing to listen and and that's not what i see in from a policy standpoint um really ever you know i i think I think the I actually think the open market to some extent is probably needed for good quality healthcare because people need some choice there. I I guess in my perfect world I I prefer some type of Medicare for all for you know inpatient services or acute services and some baseline level of preventative screening care, be it vaccines or cancer screening or or whatnot. Um, but then I I think you know kind of everything needs to be considered part of healthcare dollar, the food you eat, the, you know, the fitness you get, the exercise you have. When people just have insurance, if they have great insurance, they're only going to do the things that insurance covers, which is typically not the things that are going to get them better. You know, seeing a nutritionist, seeing a trainer, um, going to, you know, meditation classes, uh, seeing a psychologist, you know, the things that typically get people better from chronic disease you know, aren't, aren't what's covered. What's covered is just drug surgeries and, and, you know, other procedures. So that's, yeah. that's what acute medicine. So I, I think insurance is really for acute care. Uh, I'd rather see the open market more for chronic disease care with obviously legal, you know, ramifications to help, you know, low income folks. Uh, so they have the same access, but that's kind of, how I guess I would think about it, uh, but yeah, that's a long um, way from what I what I see being. I've not seen those <laughs> proposals being floated. Let's put it that way. Right, right. Well, uh, that's an interesting perspective. I'm, a, I'm, I don't, you know, think about this all that much. I just know it's a complete mess. So you know the the current status. So um, I'll think on that a little bit more because you've given me a lot to think about. I also want to kind of make a hard transition into uh, talking about a your your current practice in the field of cannabis medicine yeah um so if we can uh talk about that for a little bit I'd, i'm uh interested to know 
Um, and I know a little bit because I've done a little bit of research on you as, as to kind of your origin story with uh, cannabis medicine. But if you could kind of guide us into talking about it with uh, with how you got started. Yeah, I mean, in 2009, I think it was uh, Colorado passed legalization for medical cannabis use. You know, California had been kind of leading the way on that for a good decade before. But initially it was, well, one, kind of a free-for-all here. So really the physician's role was just giving patients, so to speak, authorization that they had a condition that they could use cannabis for so they could use it legally. Um, There weren't even dispensaries or places to purchase it at the time. But and so, but I had a handful of patients that came to me and said, oh, you know, I'm using cannabis for pain or I'm using cannabis for sleep. Can, you know, can you, can you authorize this so I can use it legally? And, you know, these were patients I, I knew and, and, and trusted and, and so said, sure. But, you know, there were several. So I, I kind of, after doing several of those, yeah, you, sure, I, I'll sign off on this. I, I kind of was like, oh, I should probably learn something about this. And, and I, I was already well in my kind of integrative medicine space and philosophy using variety of other botanical therapeutics and, and a lot of non kind of, you know, pharmaceutical measures. So, so it wasn't a really a big leap to say, Oh, here's another plant that might be beneficial. But, but I started just digging into kind of the research that was out there. And this was, you know, a decade ago and, and was really just blown away. I mean, there was already tons of information the you know what we call our endocannabinoid system which is essentially our own internal cannabis system which is arguably one of the most important physiologic systems in the entire body which i had certainly not been taught about in this Thank you for listening to part one of my conversation with Dr. David Gordon. I hope you enjoyed the fade out there at the end in uh, anticipation of part two, which is going to be more about cannabis medicine, how he practices it, what it's used for. Um, We also take listener questions at the end, so I'm pretty excited to get into that. I won't bore you anymore. Let's play the song and stick around for part two. Thanks. That would just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? Pizzazz. Her uterus was the universe, and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth. Nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves. It was a fight for survival. Many died though. Friends were formed to fight mutual rivals. Man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love bringing joy into their lives. Boom, they were civilized. Went from stones and bones to phones and drones as many kings took the throne. Built empires and the stories well known. History ticks along like a metronome. And then I came to be to walk, talk, and throw stuff All grown up, I got a job now and showing up I'm sleep deprived, I'm misaligned My appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time And then I met you, lovely and smooth You quickly removed my modern man's blues I wanna celebrate every breath that I take Cause I'm afraid I'm dreaming and I don't wanna wait So baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul.
forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The universe was my universe, but I left to pursue the search of love. But sometimes it hurt along the way. If there's anything I've learned, create a garden, plant flowers in the dirt. I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain, protect you from the pain as I push you toward the flames. Play the game and wonder, am I the hunted or the hunter? When I was younger, I met God and I hugged her. She said, hey baby, instead of getting lost within, how about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin? Stop, begin, let the thoughts and visions guide you further down the road, going inch by inch. Don't sprint, take it slow, protect your soul. Travel long and far, but make sure to come home, cause the love that's here is what keeps you going gives you the power and the freedom to grow. Let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress. This life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best. When life gets complex, don't think, just do it first. It was simpler when the uterus was so big. Let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. The uterus was my universe. The uterus was my universe. All conversation and information exchanged and contained in the, the podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only and should not be confused with medical treatment, advice, or direction. Nothing on the podcast should supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although guests on the show are board certified and licensed physicians, they are not functioning as physicians in this environment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know.